this is an interesting drug because it has the unexpected adverse effect of causing ulcers, particularly in the gastrointestinal tract, and particularly very painful perianal ulcers. Clinical trials for regulatory approval are designed to test efficacy. But new drugs might have adverse reactions, reactions that those trials aren't designed to spot. To talk about those adverse reactions, I'm joined by Robin Ferner from the West Midland Centre for Adverse Drug Reactions. And Robin's author of a new article just published on bmj.com. Robin, thank you very much for taking time to talk to us today. Thank you. So yes, that regulatory process, it'll catch some adverse reactions, which might then prevent a drug getting onto the market. Um, Or there might be some reactions spotted which don't stop a drug getting onto market. But as I said, there will be some reactions which aren't spotted at all in that process. So I wondered, um, for a start, can I get you to characterise what's going on here? What kind of reactions are we actually talking about? The major problem with spotting adverse drug reactions is, firstly, uh, that they may not be what you expect. They may be odd or curious or nothing to do with the reason for you giving the drug. The classic example is cough, which is an adverse effect of ACE inhibitors, Mm. which are used to treat high blood pressure. Uh, and which wasn't discovered for some years after the drugs were launched. So that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, that rare adverse reactions can't be spotted by small trials, but can still be very important. The classic example here is heart attacks with COX-2 inhibitors, uh, where one in 5,000 people died. Now, uh, the rule of thumb is that you need to study three times as many people as you want to be uh, safe with. That's to say, if you want to rule out a a reaction that occurs in one in 5,000, you need to study 15,000 to be 95% sure of picking it up. Mm. And what size are the sort of the RCTs that we've talked about for regulatory approval, you know? For standard drugs, there are around 3,000 people treated with the drug before it's licensed. I say for standard drugs because there's a relatively new class of drugs called the orphan drugs, Mm. where testing is much less rigorous and where changes to the license and to the information about the drugs is much more likely to arise after they've been given marketing approval. Mm. So, I mean, what we're we're essentially saying here is that there will be a fairly broad set of reactions that that aren't spotted at that point of of regulatory approval. If it happens in in fewer than one in a thousand people, the chances are it, it might not have been picked up. Correct. And some of those reactions will be of curiosity only, and others may be deadly. Now, if you're talking about a drug to treat cancer. It may be that a deadly reaction that affects one in a thousand people is not so important because you're saving a large number of people from otherwise an unpleasant death from Mm. cancer. But if you're talking about a drug that's used to treat headache or an oral contraceptive pill, then a fatal reaction in one in a thousand is obviously very important. Mm. 
Absolutely. Now, as as we said, you know, these these reactions could be fairly broad, and they could be something that, like the the coxswain inhibitor, are entirely unrelated. It seems to to the thing that you want to treat, so it would be quite hard to to spot. Um, how is it? What is it that that you know would start to to make you suspicious that a patient um, was having an adverse reaction to a drug? That's a difficult question to answer, but the first thing, what's absolutely essential is to have a good drug history, that's to say to know which drugs the patient has been exposed to. You need to know, of course, the drugs that the patient's been prescribed, though that's sometimes left out of the equation uh, when patients move from one locus of care to another, from general practice to hospital or back again. But you also need to know about uh, drugs that they've bought over the counter and about uh, what I'd call unconventional therapies, so, alternative therapies, if you like. Mm, so, uh, yeah, actually, things like St. John's Wort or, or that we know have potentially some interactions. Absolutely. Yeah, interesting. So what's next? What's, what, what, what would you start thinking about? So uh, the first question is uh, that you ask yourself then is, looking through this list of drugs, is there anything that strikes me as likely to cause the symptoms or produce the signs that I see in front of me? Some are quite well known. Of course, if you have a patient who's just had a, an intravenous injection of penicillin and who's collapsed and uh, who has wheeze and urticaria, you think, well, this is... a an acute allergic reaction, an anaphylactic reaction. So sometimes the context and the drug history make it absolutely clear. Sometimes you'll know about adverse reactions that aren't immediately obvious. For example, on a cardiology ward, uh, you might see a patient who's treated with nicarandil. This is an interesting drug because it has the unexpected adverse effect of causing ulcers, particularly in the gastrointestinal tract, and particularly very painful perianal ulcers. Now, they don't present to cardiologists. They present to the gastroenterological surgeons uh, who may not know that nicarandil causes this adverse effect and who sometimes undertake heroic operations to cure a condition which could be cured by stopping the drug. Mm, absolutely, and and there I suppose is, that's symptomatic of that idea that something is happening in one system, and where the constant you know people concentrate on it in a different system and and not necessarily making that link together. But you know, conversely, uh, a a drug might have a, an adverse reaction within the same system, and that might look like it's presenting as as part of the natural history of an illness. What would you do there to start? thinking about what's going on. That, that's tricky. So if uh, somebody presents with asthma and you treat them with a corticosteroid inhaler, they may sometimes get wheeze from the small particles of corticosteroid. The um, teaching is that actually you advise the patient to take their bronchodilator before they take their corticosteroids so as to prevent it. So if you know the reaction could occur and it sounds as if that's what's happening because every time I take my brown inhaler I get wheezy, you'd advise me to take my blue inhaler first. Mm. It sounds like part of the key here is getting a really good history. 
Absolutely. And that's, that's always true, but it's particularly true of adverse drug reactions. The catch is that some are uh, not very well known. And, of course, some are not known at all, in which case uh, temporal relation with the drug, a relation in time between the reaction and the drug can be helpful. Mm. Mm. Doing some detective work there to try and work back. Yes, you need to do some thinking and it's not absolutely straightforward even then. Mm. So there may be a delay between starting the drug and the reaction developing. It's not all like anaphylaxis with penicillin. Yes, it's not so dramatic and and immediate. Um, Is there anything that you can do to confirm some of that hypothesis? You know, um, I don't know, dose adjustment to to see if there's an effect there, that kind of thing? Well, that's a very good question. Uh, It used to be taught that some adverse reactions are dose-dependent and others aren't. Actually, I think that's a misunderstanding. And what's true is that within the therapeutic range... Uh, some drug uh, reactions appear not to be dose-dependent. They tend to be immunological reactions. But we know immunological reactions are dose-dependent too. So, for example, if you're a hay fever sufferer, as I am, you know that as the pollen count goes up, you need to buy more tissues. Uh, And the same is true for delayed-type hypersensitivity reactions, both causing them and eliciting them a dose-responsive. It's just that uh, for some reactions, those dose-response curves for the harm are at much lower levels than the dose-response curve for benefit, so you don't see the whole range. Mm. So what is it that that a a clinician can do to to start investigating this and and Mm. maybe confirm or, or, or deny that suspicion? So I've already spoken about uh, anaphylaxis to penicillin and clearly uh, giving minute doses of penicillins in skin prick tests gives you some indication of whether the patient, a good indication actually, Mm -hmm. and clearly uh, if uh, you suspect that a patient is suffering an anaphylactic reaction to a penicillin or has done in the past, but you are determined if you can to give a penicillin, you may do skin prick tests in which a very small amount of penicillin or related compound is injected into the skin and which is a very good predictor of whether an anaphylactic reaction is likely to occur. And for for some of the immune reactions that you, that you mentioned that might not be as extreme as a, an anaphylactic one, is a sort of skin prick test still useful there? Probably not. There's some debate about that. So, for example, if you're worried about skin reactions to uh, um, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, probably not. So what you're really saying here is that it's really complicated and it's difficult to start the investigation of some of these things. If you do have that suspicion with a patient who's on a medication... What should you do about that prescription? It depends on the circumstances. So this is a problem which quite commonly arises when you're treating patients who have tuberculosis because they get four drugs and uh, may get, let us say, fever or liver damage from one of those drugs. And the standard strategy is to stop them all and then start them in 
the reverse order uh, of the likelihood that they cause the reaction. If you're a general practitioner and you're not dealing with patients who are dying from tuberculous meningitis, then you can relax a little bit and look at the drugs. It's always good practice to reduce the number of drugs to those that are helping the patient. So that's the first decision. The second is if there's a temporal relationship that suggests one drug, you might wish to stop that or change to an alternative drug. Uh, And the third is uh, if things remain unpleasant for the patient, it's a discussion to be had with the patient about whether the benefit they get from a particular drug is uh, sufficient to warrant the adverse effect. Um, What is it that causes these adverse reactions? I mean, you've you've mentioned um, there might be an immunological kind of aspect to to some of them. Um, But for others, is it, you know, are they genetically defined, some quirk that's changing people's biochemistry or lifestyle or, or you know, what, what is it that's, that's going on here? Right. Some uh, adverse reactions undoubtedly are genetic uh, for a number of reasons. One reason is, uh, if you like, physiological. So patients who have G6PD deficiency, glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, have red cells which break down, for example, with agents like primaquine. Mm. Uh, That is because the red cells aren't protected against oxidation. That's uh, one form. A second form is where the enzymes that are responsible for breaking down drugs are themselves deficient or are inhibited by other drugs. Warfarin is a good example of a drug where enzyme inhibition can uh, make you uh, much more susceptible to bleeding. Mm. Uh, But it's also an example where uh, you may have genetic reasons for either breaking the warfarin down more quickly than usual, in which case you're resistant to warfarin, Mm. or more slowly than usual, in which case it's particularly dangerous. On top of that, we know that the immunological reactions, particularly the severe skin reactions, can be determined by HLA type, which is to do with your uh, immune system, and which probably in conjunction with breakdown products from the drugs makes you attack your own skin or other organs. Mm, mm. One of the genetic components we haven't spoken about is uh, your sex, and women in general are more likely to get certain adverse effects. For example, cough with ACE inhibitors, Mm. which we've already mentioned. Um, Can I just dig into that a little bit? Is that to do with hormone differences, or is it... uh, You know, is there something carried on in... uh, it's an interesting all, question, and I'm not sure that it's been uh, explored, actually. Because we all have an X chromosome, so that's, you know, yes. it doesn't seem like that should mediate it. But, yes. yeah. You think it's due to Y chromosomes? Possibly. Well, who, who knows? They may Micro- project you. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the answer, and I'm not sure whether it's known. In the same way, uh, there are some um, ethnic groups, whatever that may mean, who appear to be more susceptible to adverse reactions than others. And the classic example is angioedema, swelling of the lips and tongue uh, with angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors, ACE inhibitors, which is 
somewhere between three and five times commoner in people of African origin uh, than of people of European heritage. That's interesting. Because when we talk about people of African heritage, there's so much more diversity within populations who are natively from Africa than there is amongst, you know, other ones. So, yeah, uh, you know, the, we, like, the catch is that the Africans who are studied in um, investigations, for example, of angioedema are the Africans who are living in the United States to a large extent. And so their heritage is much less diverse, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not an expert on the genetics of Africanness in the States, but presumably many slaves came from a particular area mm. of West Africa. Mm. Yeah. So you started to sort of elucidate some of these these links that we already know between susceptible populations. Is there anywhere people can go to to look specifically at that? To you know, you you have someone in front of you who is you know, of African origin and a woman and has a certain profile uh, and you think, what drugs should I go about prescribing here? Are there any that might be particularly um, problematic? Is there, a, is there somewhere that people can go to, to look at that? So the canonical resource is the British National Formulary, but the extent to which it deals with subsets of um, susceptible populations is... Um, relatively modest because so much other information is packed in there. So that's the first port of call. The second useful resource uh, is the summary of product characteristics, which I think most doctors don't refer to, but which is easily available on the web uh, at uh, eMedicine Compendium. Mm -hmm. So that tends to have more detail about those who are especially susceptible in paragraphs 4.5 and 4.8 since you <laughs> specific. Um, so that's great. So people can, that, that data is, a, is available for people should they, they wish to. Some, some data are available. Mm. And then there are other resources like um, Myla's side effects of drugs, which clearly are difficult to get hold of and expensive unless you happen to be an information pharmacist. Yeah. Uh, so obviously those those only um those only talk about the the reactions that are known and reported and and documented correct um part of what your article also aims to do is explain the process of um flagging that there there is a potential adverse drug reaction um in a patient that you've identified by doing some of the things that you talked about earlier so if we can sort of turn to that now um, who is it that is in charge of, of telling um, the regulator or the, the drug company that there might be a problem here? So uh, my first advice is not to worry too much about the company because if you report an adverse reaction to the regulator, the regulator will let the company know. So let's stick with regulators. And the regulator in England and Wales and indeed in Scotland and Northern Ireland is the uh, Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, mm. the MHRA. And they have a site devoted to the yellow card. Type yellow card as one word into your web browser and you should find the MHRA's site. That allows a doctor to report, but it also allows other healthcare professionals to report, and more importantly still, it allows patients 
or the carers of patients to report to. You ask who's responsible, well, my answer would be we are all responsible. There's a worry that uh, if you're, for example, a hospital doctor, the general practitioner will already have reported it and the report will be logged twice. The patient may feel unempowered because they discuss the reaction with a doctor and they may think it's the doctor's responsibility. To reassure you, MHRA has a system for looking for duplicate reports and counting them only once. Mm, so best to be safe rather than sorry and not to our, have it reported at all. Our dictum is, if in doubt, fill one out. <laughs> and you can do it online. Uh, if you're a technophobe, uh, then it's possible to find yellow cards, for example, in the back of the British National Formulary, or indeed to ask MHRA for a yellow card. Mm. So uh, my advice is that if you suspect an adverse reaction, you should consider reporting it. Mm. No. I was going to say, and what level of suspicion um, should make you do that? Because, as you say, that it could be slightly unclear as to whether this, this is actually related to a drug or, or whatever. How, you know, at what point would it be worth doing it? This is, this is a good question. My answer is the more serious the adverse reaction, the lower your threshold should be for reporting it. Clearly, if somebody has to be admitted to hospital as a result of the adverse reaction or if they get organ failure as a consequence of it or if they die, it's important that that be flagged even if the suspicion is modest. On the other hand, if you're talking about something relatively trivial uh, like, uh, let us say, headache, which occurs in placebo trials commonly as well as with tablets, uh, then you might want to have rather better evidence before you rushed to report it. Um, there are a couple of other guides. For example, some drugs are under uh, more intensive monitoring than others, so-called black triangle mm. drugs. Uh, if you saw an adverse reaction with a black triangle drug, or if you experienced one as a patient, then it's a good idea to report it. If... As you said, you know, patients might be on a, a range of medications, some prescribed, some not. Um, and out of that, you know, you're fairly sure that someone is having some sort of reaction to to one of the drugs they're on. What, what do you do in that situation? Report them all or, you know, or should you investigate further and maybe try and do mm-hmm. some of that switching to, to see if that goes away? Or, you know, like, what do you think is the... Uh, the uh, likelihood is that you will have suspicions as to which is uh, the responsible drug and the yellow card allows you to put down your best guess, if I can put it like that, uh, along with all the other medicines and that's sufficient usually. If you're not sure if, for example, the patient started two drugs at the same time, then you could put both down. Okay. And leave it to the MHRA to look at the signal and and do the the kind of matching themselves. Yes. I mean, that's essentially what happens with combination preparations, Mm, where inevitably you have two drugs or more at one go. Mm. Um, What happens once that you you put in a a yellow card, potentially for something that is a very severe reaction? you know, how quickly is that looked at and assessed and, and a decision made about the 
the marketing of that drug. MHRA has a way of prioritizing signals, and a signal is a series of reports of a drug and a reaction, sometimes with a class of drugs and a reaction. Um, you would usually want at least three reports, uh, even of relatively serious adverse reactions, before you categorize this as a signal, though very occasionally you see what my colleague in Oxford has called between-the-eyes adverse reactions, which are so obviously caused <laughs> by the drug that they strike you between the eyes. Um, having prioritized these reports, uh, some will then be investigated quite quickly, but the regulator has only three choices in a way. One is to watch and wait and see or try to acquire more information. Mm. And for most signals, you will want more information before you make a regulatory decision. The second is to warn people about the existence or possible existence of this adverse reaction. For example, by changing the specifications in the summary of product characteristics, mm. the data sheet. Mm -hmm. And the third, which is a relatively extreme thing, is to withdraw the drug from the market. And so are those black triangle um, drugs that you talked about earlier, it's ones where there has been some sort of signal um, and now the, the agency is keeping an eye on them, as it were. I explained earlier, I think, that when a drug is first marketed, there's a limited amount of information and not enough to exclude rare adverse effects. So newly marketed drugs almost inevitably have black triangles. But so too do some uh, older drugs uh, where there is a suspicion that something's gone wrong. Mm. Uh, an example is sodium valproate mm. used in pregnancy. So having either a patient or a doctor or a pharmacist or a nurse or whomever has filled out one of these, these yellow cards and, and sent it to the MHRA, is there a feedback mechanism to let them know that, yes, your suspicion was right or wrong, you know, something to... to sort of help them with their, their learning and future prescribing? That is a, a difficult question for me to answer. There is a feedback system to let you know that the report has been received, uh, but uh, the only way you're going to know that something's happened as a result is by reading Drug Safety Update, which is the MHRA's publication, or looking at the data sheet, or keeping your ear to the ground. So there isn't a very close feedback between reporters who, after all, report confidentially and mm. uh, who um, don't have close links with MHRA and MHRA itself. Yeah. All of this relies on people filling out a, a yellow card um, to say that they think that something's wrong. But it might be that um, one GP in... A hundred or something spots that that's that's going on, but yet you know they they might record someone's symptoms in the uh, in their notes or, or or whatever. So is there a mechanism to kind of you know look at 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 generally collected data as well as these um these yellow cards to to confirm some of these suspicions that are going on? It's an interesting question as to how you confirm a signal, and one way to do it is to look at a database 
which has collected information from many patients, both on their prescriptions and on their clinical events. And one such database is the Clinical Practice Research Database, CPRD, based in NHS general practices, and which uh, now has a very large number of records of precisely that sort. So that MHRA, having once suspected there's a link between a drug and an adverse event, can see whether it is indeed confirmed in CPRD. Mm. So does that mean that there isn't as much pressure on GPs to you know, fill in yellow cards because the data is already available to to the regulator? No, the, there is a disconnect between the yellow card system, which really is a record of clinical suspicions and especially valuable if it comes from clinicians or, for other reasons, from patients, and the routine amassing of a great deal of data which is or are noisy. We know that general practitioners and indeed everyone in the health service is under great pressure now. But these reports are really uh, vital for medicine safety. Of course, uh, if you as a clinician suspect that your patient has an adverse drug reaction, you can try to encourage them to report on your behalf. But that doesn't absolve you from the uh, duty to um, keep medicines safe, and that means reporting when you can. So, as you've pointed out, keep symptoms that, that you're seeing in front of you, the, the potential that they're caused by a medication in your head, and if you, you feel like the suspicion is enough, do go and uh, fill out one of the yellow cards that, you, that, uh, yes. that you've been talking about. Uh, I, uh, I should say the reports that are valuable reports of serious adverse effects or adverse effects and new drugs and of new adverse effects not previously suspected. In other words, they don't appear in the BNF. So uh, if you've got a black triangle drug or you've got a serious reaction or you've got a reaction that other people haven't noticed, please report it. You've been listening to Robin Ferner talk about adverse drug reactions. What causes them, how you can spot them, and how you can report them. This interview was based on a clinical update just published on bmj.com. Have a look at that for all of the links that Robin talked about during this podcast. That's it for this week, but we'll be back soon with a roundup of what's happening in the world of evidence-based medicine. And if you're interested in well-being, have a look at our Facebook page, where you can see a really interesting discussion about bad behaviour and bullying at work. Until next time, I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ. Thanks for listening.